Joseph Heller's 1961 bestseller, Catch-22, was such an influential contribution to metaphorical literature that it has become synonymous with a paradoxical state from which one cannot escape due to conflicting parameters. The concept is presented by Doc Danica, a World War II Army psychiatrist evaluating a fighter pilot using the following rationale. Quote, Do you want to get out of combat duty? No. You have to keep fighting. Do you want to get out of combat duty? Yes. Only the insane can, and wanting to get out is proof of sanity. Therefore, you must keep fighting. End quote. An unsolvable logical dilemma appropriately applicable to a bureaucratic syllogism. A pilot cannot be grounded by reason of insanity, even if he is. Scattered curiosity, the number 22 has no plot significance whatsoever and was merely chosen by the book's publisher, vetoing Heller's desired digit, 18. Remarkably like a catch-22 is the Mexican standoff, a futile plight with no commodious path to victory. Picture the cinematic trope of outlaws in a circle aiming guns at one another, a la the good, the bad, and the ugly, or reservoir dogs. The locution was first printed in the Sunday Mercury in 1876, giving center stage to the holdup of an American by a bandito. Quote, We will call it a standoff, a Mexican standoff. You lose your money, but you save your life. End quote. Over time, the idea matured into a scenario where both parties are equally doomed by the absence of a safe withdrawal. Both Catch-22 and Mexican Standoff are examples of clichés, prosaic, pigeonholed, phrases, titles, and themes absent of ingenuity. They are prevalent in films and television, from self-destructing clock countdowns, the terrible aim of henchmen who politely attack the protagonist one at a time, the antagonist tying a damsel in distress to railroad tracks, and car keys conveniently left in the sun visor amid a universe where everyone seems to know how to hotwire a car. Many of the trite potboilers practiced in everyday conversations come from the bard, William Shakespeare, who first waxed imagery like sea change in The Tempest, rhyme or reason in the comedy of errors and as you like it, and recycled his rapier wit in Hamlet, Macbeth, King Lear, and Richard II, belaboring the axiom, test one's metal. That's M-E-T-T-L-E, denoting courageous fortitude for which one might be awarded a medal, M-E-D-A-L, made out of metal, M-E-T-A-L. But the all-time American popularizer of a new slang vernacular, described by W.J. Funk of Funk and Wagnall's Dictionary as one of the most fecund makers of American slang, was Thomas Aloysius Dorgan, or Tad as he was best known. Tad lost four fingers to a childhood shovel-riding accident. You heard me right. A giant pulley was propelling it. That saw his right hand, quote, reduced to a thumb and a piece of knuckle, 
end quote. Though an alternate account of the incident claims he lost the phalanges to a buzzsaw. Nevertheless, Tad swiftly ripened into an artist while recuperating from the trauma and excelled so rapidly that he was brought on to the staff of the San Francisco Bulletin at age 14. Tad's first comic strip, Johnny Wise, got him noticed by the New York Journal, where the cartoonist-slash-sports writer and his comics Judge Rummy and Indoor Sports were welcomed aboard the publication. Heavyweight champion Jack Dempsey, a.k.a. Kid Blackie, a.k.a. the Manassa Mauler, lauded Tad as, quote, the greatest authority on boxing, end quote. So it should come as no surprise that Tad was inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame with the classification of Observer. But even more impressive is the catalog of neogelisms he introduced to American vocabulary, such as the cat's meow, cat's whiskers, and cat's pajamas, meaning excellent or impressive, for crying out loud, 23 skidoo, dumbbell, indicating a stupid person, applesauce, meaning ridiculous, cheaters for eyeglasses, skimmer, a hat, hard-boiled, tough, drugstore cowboy, a ladies' man, nickel nurser, a miser, as busy as a one-armed paper hanger, overworked, and yes, we have no bananas, which was quickly made into a ubiquitous novelty song. When Tad died in 1929, media mogul William Randolph Hearst paid him homage by reprinting Dorgan's most memorable comics on the front page of the New York Evening Journal. Yet Tad's trove of timeless expressions is but a fraction of the inventory vaulted in the scattered curiosities cliché cachet. <laughs> It is unsurprising that the most general truisms concern universal matters, such as food, sports, literature, and religion. But a substantial number of them involve animals, probably because they take no offense to our critiques of their unchanging instincts over the centuries. In the United States, most canines enjoy better living conditions than their human counterparts, and it is difficult to think of man's best friend in a negative light. Yet we glibly hurl insultuous lamentations like, You dirty dog. That's for the dogs. Your meatloaf tastes like dog food. Or, My dogs are killing me. In addition, you could also be feeling sick as a dog, which is only slightly better than being sick as a horse because Mr. Ed is incapable of vomiting. Now, it is important to remember that our pooches and putty tats didn't always slumber in beds with us, or even in the house at all. 
Many of our predecessors' mongrels moiled each day until they were tired as a dog and resigned themselves to sleeping outdoors after a long day of labor, sometimes finding warmth and respite atop the cushy straw of a thatched rooftop. When torrent rainstorms occurred and rafters collapsed from the extra weight of wet critters, the washed-off animals thusly reigned cats and dogs, the protectors of farms. But their exhortations are nothing compared to the procurers of farms, bees. According to Albert Einstein, quote, If the bee disappears from the surface of the earth, man would have no more than four years left to live. End quote. A scary premonition for a creature so susceptible to pesticides, disease, and global warming. Bees are incredibly prolific, using hexagons in their engineering, and are integral to the maintenance and preservation of our planet. In fact, one-third of the world's food supply relies on their pollination. Apples, grapes, i.e. wine, onions, melons, nuts, peaches, apricots, plums, lemons, limes, bananas, mangoes, papaya, strawberries, blueberries, avocados, beans, coffee, vanilla, tomatoes, cucumbers, cauliflower, cabbage, sugarcane, chocolate, agave, the list goes on and on. And they do it for free. Because they work so hard, busy as a bee, and obsess over their queen, it is easy to understand how the 16th century Scottish adage, bee in your bonnet, or head full of bees, came to mean infatuation. As you move down from the head to the thorax, and then finally the abdomen, you'll find the bee's knees, meaning the best derived from a Prohibition-era cocktail of lemon juice, honey, and gin. The black and gold fuzzy familiars are not the only insects to have their patellas used colloquially. Since the 1800s, a youngster might be categorized as knee-high to a grasshopper. However, depending on the region, the grasshopper might get substituted with being knee-high to a toad, knee-high to a mosquito, a duck, or jackrabbit. A bucktooth rodent who is commonly alluded to in another chestnut cliché, hare-brained. That's H-A-R-E, meaning crazy, foolish, anxious, or panicky as a rabbit, or hare. The same kind of categorization can be applied to primates going bananas, a triviality that is not as old as you may think. While its exact emergence is a mystery, even to the Oxford English Dictionary, it seems that going bananas was fashionable on 1960s college campuses owing to Simeon's distinguishing love of the potassium-rich treat. By the way, if you spend just two minutes watching monkeys on YouTube, 
you will discover that humans wrongly eat bananas upside down. While we in the 21st century cogitate going bananas as a harmless way of conveying silliness, in the 1930s, it was a derogatory slur inferring homosexuality, perceived as a perverted mental disorder at the time. The banana was symbolic of a phallus, and those going bananas were said to be monkeying around or up to monkey business. Scatter curiosity, monkey business is the title of songs by both synth-pop duo The Pet Shop Boys and hair metal band Skid Row separately, and is the honorific of a 1952 movie wherein a chimpanzee discovers the fountain of youth. Well, I'll be a monkey's uncle. Another bourgeois formulation evoking amazement or impossibility, and serves as a movie title to boot. The Monkey's Uncle was a 1965 Disney film with a theme song of the same name, performed by Annette Funicello and the Beach Boys. A chimp named Stanley is court-ordered to be raised as the legal nephew to Merlin Jones, a college-age virtuoso who invents a man-powered airplane. It's actually a sequel to the previous year's The Misadventures of Merlin Jones, where the title character dabbles in hypnotism. Here is a snippet from the New York Times review of The Monkey's Uncle. Quote, An amusing film made with artless artfulness. It all falls into bright, colorful, and innocuous non-sequitur, and in an hour and a half, you are through. Mildly diverted and unburdened by the message. End quote. While the terminology first appeared in print in a 1917 ad for a stage production of The Brass Monkey, its provenance is thought to be a sarcastic aside that was first uttered by creationists digging at Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species and the Theory of Evolution. Amid the 1925 Scopes Monkey trial propounding that humans evolved from apes, being called a monkey's uncle was a scathing remark. Whatever your opinion on the matter, the similitude is flawed. To make sense at all, it should be, I'll be a monkey's niece or nephew. But even human relatives risk scrutiny of the witted tongue. For instance, in 1887, Prime Minister Robert Gascoigne Cecil, or Bob, promoted his nephew, Arthur Balfour, to the Chief Secretary for Ireland. Not a conventional move amongst his contemporaries, and it spurned outrage as Balfour's primary qualification for the gig was, Bob's your uncle, mate a substitute way of saying, and there you have it, or piece of cake. Extended versions of the Cockney favorite are Bob's your uncle and Fanny's your aunt, or Bob's your uncle and Fanny's your granny. However, it could all just be a cock and bull story. 
The cock and the bull were inns in 18th century northern England that travelers and couriers would frequent. As they sat around drinking ale, eating mutton, and cavorting, the exaggerated accounts spurted inside the two establishments were reduced to being called cock and bull stories. And it's possible that those last call stumblers encountered pink elephants, a hallucination brought on by alcohol. Such symbolism was first conceived in Jack London's 1913 book, John Barleycorn, when describing habitual teetotalers. Quote, There are, broadly speaking, two types of drinkers. There is the man whom we all know, stupid, unimaginative, whose brain is bitten numbly by numb maggots, who walks generously with widespread tentative legs, falls frequently in the gutter, and who sees, in the extremity of his ecstasy, blue mice and pink elephants. He is the type that gives rise to the jokes in the funny papers. End quote. Scattered curiosity, in Action Comics number 1, circa 1938, Lois Lane reports having seen Superman, recounts his astounding powers, and is accused by her editor of seeing pink elephants. And who could forget Disney's animated classic Dumbo featuring the pink elephants on parade sequence depicting Timothy and Dumbo drinking champagne-laced water and getting three sheets to the wind, also meaning drunk. Nautical in nature, ships outfitted with three sails would waver listlessly through heavy storms or rough waters if not adequately secured. Wind-sheeted sails were carefully positioned to steady the vessel as it jostled around like an inebriated man. The inimitable Charles Dickens hyped the verbalism in the pages of Dombey and Son, where Captain Cuddle ascribes his crew member as, quote, three sheets in the wind, or in plain words, drunk, end quote. A classic example of the pot calling the kettle black, being guilty of your own accusations, as Dickens loved to imbibe spirits while simultaneously preaching moderation. The pot-kettle comparison was the brainchild of a wordsmith from a much earlier era, Quaker leader William Penn, in his riveting compendium, Some Fruits of Solitude in Reflections and Maxims. Quote, For a covetous man to inveigh against prodigality, an atheist against idolatry, a tyrant against rebellion, or liar against forgery, and a drunkard against intemperance, is for the pot to call the kettle black. End quote. Harsh truths. But one could always turn over a new leaf, a parable pertaining to a journal or autobiography whereby the previous page or leaf is already written, but the next leaf is blank with endless possibilities of starting anew. Keep in mind that turning over a new leaf doesn't always constitute a good change of ethos, just a kind of change. If I had my druthers, or inclination, 
leaf turning would be reserved primarily for righting wrongs. Druthers is a distinctively American shorthand mashup of Wood Rathers, stemming back to an 1870 issuance of Overland Monthly and Out West magazine. Quote, If I was a youngster, I'd rather set up in any profession but a circus driver. But a man can't always have his drathers. End quote. Over time, drathers became druthers. This next one has withstood ever-advancing technology by altering composition while keeping a general nuance intact. Have you ever courtesy copied or CC'd somebody on an email? Or even the highly elusive blind courtesy copy or BCC? Well, it may surprise you to learn that CC or carbon copy dates as far back as 1879 when inked carbon paper was used for making duplicates of an original document with a limit of five at a time. You still see carbon copies in receipt books or credit card and printers from time to time, but by and large, they went away with the photocopier. So the CC's survival into digitization is nothing to sneeze at. Historically, to sneeze at something is to brush it off or snort at it disinterestedly. Therefore, if an entity is nothing to sneeze at, it is important. This rhetoric came into vogue during the 17th century to illustrate the behavior of elitists dipping into their snuff boxes. If an aristocrat were stuck in a dull conversation and wished to assert disregard for it, they'd pull out their snuff boxes, take a bump, and then sneeze in the face of the doldrummery, the equivalent of rudely whipping out your iPhone and scrolling in the middle of a tete-a-tete. If snuff abuse was the smartphone of yesteryear, the landline would have been opium and the improbable objectives envisioned from aberrations brought on by the drug are what we flippantly recognize as pipe dreams. Scattered curiosity, in 1955, the composer-lyricist team Rodgers and Hammerstein delivered one of their biggest theatrical flops, Pipe Dream which had nothing to do with opium dens that thrived in New York State as late as 1957, but is instead centered on a promiscuous ingenue, Susie, living in a defunct boiler pipe and falling in love with a marine biologist named Doc, showcasing songs like A Lopsided Bus, Bum's Opera, The Tide Pool, and everybody's got a home but me. Bonus curiosity, Jim Henson nearly Muppet-fied the Broadway bomb in the late 1980s. Bonus, bonus curiosity, in 2003, Operation Pipe Dreams sought to crack down on businesses selling marijuana paraphernalia, including Tommy Chong's Glassworks Nice Dreams resulting in the incarceration of the comedian 
who felt as if he'd been entrapped by authorities. Not to be confused with booby-trapped, a surprise-confounded or baited machination. Why booby? In Spanish, bobo translates to stupid, fool, dunce, idiot, simpleton, etc. And 1590s England made bobo booby. These ploys are so nasty because they exploit natural human behaviors and habits. They are demoralizing, create confusion, keep enemies stressed out, and make them cautious instead of aggressive. Classic cliché booby baits include cash boxes, flashlights, sand-filled cans on pressure triggers, ajar doors, abandoned crates of beer, stocked cabinets, Playboy magazines. I mean, you can really stretch your diabolical imagination for chaos here. Most states in the U.S. prohibit them. Listen to this 1970s ruling by the Supreme Court. Quote, Allowing persons at their own risk to employ deadly mechanical devices imperils the lives of children, firemen and policemen acting within the scope of their employment, and others. Where the actor is present, there is always the possibility he will realize that deadly force is not necessary. But deadly mechanical devices are without mercy or discretion. Such devices are silent instrumentalities of death. They deal death and destruction to the innocent as well as the criminal intruder without the slightest warning. The taking of human life or infliction of great bodily injury by such means is brutally savage and inhuman. End quote. There is nothing noble about exacting revenge on an unsuspecting enemy. Better to restrain yourself from flying off the handle, according to cheaply affixed airbound axe heads, and bury the hatchet, or reconcile with your adversaries. An analogy consanguine of the Iroquois Confederacy, where weapons would literally be interred in dirt during peacetime to, quote, proclaim that they wish to unite all the nations of the earth and to hurl the hatchet so far into the depths of the earth that it shall never again be seen in the future, end quote. This was not a new practice by the time Europeans saw its wisdom in 1644 and embraced it as preferential to biting the bullet. A shibboleth to convey facing one's death, brought to light by the humanistic novelist Rudyard Kipling of Jungle Book fame, in his 1891 narrative, The Light That Failed. Hollywood would have you believe that before the advent of anesthesia, a patient would literally bite a bullet instead of a leather strap to cope with the pain endured through surgery, but there is not much proof of this ever having actually occurred, as it would likely break their teeth. So take it with a grain of salt. Sage advice from the Roman author, philosopher, and warrior Gaius Plinus Secundus, a.k.a. Pliny the Elder. 
His final tome, Naturalist Historia, Natural History, and the only one that has survived antiquity, is reckoned to be the world's first encyclopedia, covering zoology, geology, botany, astronomy, and mineralogy. By all means, living through the days of the wildly unstable Emperor Nero, it helped knowing a thing or two about poison, namely antidote elements, included amongst them a grain of salt. Hence, Pliny advised that poison be taken with a grain of salt. His was a heroic death, not brought about by poison, but rather from trying to evacuate his friend Rectina, family in tow, from their home being threatened by an erupting Mount Vesuvius. Even older than the Roman Republic or the Roman Empire was ancient Greece, a true democracy where eligible citizens would vote on absolutely everything with colored beans. White plebiscites represented a yay, and black a nay. Spilling the beans revealed everything, averting manipulative accounting, also known as cooking the books, a concept conceived by culinarists where ingredients are modified to benefit the chef, encouraging them to feel their oats, a metonymy hinting at a boisterous, well-fed colt acting happy as a clam at high water, a second super-specific simile that gets shortened for some impetus is stark naked as a jaybird, which is misleading in construct considering it suggests that jaybirds have little if no plumage. The whole parlance, naked as a fledgling jaybird, makes much more sense. A fledgling is not fully feathered yet, rendering them flightless. Keeping that in mind, you can rationalize how jaybird is synonymous with a jailbird. When new inmates are brought in, jaybirds are stripped of their clothing and given prison fatigues to help quickly identify those who attempt to fly the coop. The more serious offenders, fated for capital punishment, would spend their incarceration on tenterhooks with tense, anxious expectations. Hailing from the 1633 John Ford play, Broken Heart, quote, There is no faith in women. Passion, oh, be contained. My very heartstrings are on the tenters, end quote. Tenters, T-E-N-T-E-R-S, were frames of wood lined with triangular nails for processing wool. Raw woven textiles covered with dirt and oil would be cleaned by a fuller who would subsequently dry the fiber outside on a tenter frame to prevent shrinkage. The hooks helped keep firm the proper length. And wide-spanning tenter grounds or tenter fields 
were used for enormous pieces of fabric. Gadzooks! There's a corny way of communicating bewilderment for you. That is, until you realize that Gadzooks is a variation of God's hooks, the nails used to crucify Jesus Christ. Not so corny now, huh? What a brutal way to have to face the music. An age-old saying whose foundation is unidentified, but more than likely involves soldiers marching to the beat of war drums or music on both fronts to keep them alert or on the ball. Regularly reasoned to be describing the balls of the feet, the intonation is in fact sports-related, explicitly baseball. As cited in 1864's Ernest Bracebridge, Schoolboy Days, quote, Ellis seized the bat with a convulsive clutch. Remembering Ernest's advice, he kept his eye on the ball and hit it so fairly he sent it flying away a considerable distance, end quote. Another cliched term born of America's pastime is whammy, stemming from this 1939 remark in the Syracuse Herald Journal. Quote, Nobody would have suspected that the baseball gods had put the whammy on Myers and Ernie when the ninth opened. End quote. The vocable is brought to bear repeatedly in the comic strip Lil Abner, and of course, the television game show, Press Your Luck. No whammies, no whammies, no whammies, no whammies, stop! Oh, how I would love to be a contestant. I would triumph hands down with my demon-dodging palms. Only, that's not really what winning hands down means. At first, I speculated this was a poker reference to winning easily with a terrific hand like pocket aces, but it turns out that's wrong. But hands down is loosely associated with gambling in the form of 19th century horse racing. A jockey must keep tight reins to get a horse to run. If they have a commanding lead, the rider can loosen their grip and win hands down. A comment wholly connected with gambling is no dice, a rejection of a request you have complete control of. In the early part of the 1900s, gambling was a sweeping illegal pursuit and rollers would go to great lengths to conceal their dice, even going so far as to swallowing them. No dice, no arrest, as prosecutors would be asked to present the pipped cubes in the courtroom as proof. Luck be a lady tonight! Ha! If you enjoyed the program you just heard, please rate it, or share it with a friend, or even write a review. This gig pays zero dollars, but your clicks are priceless. We'll see you next time. to help.
help us keep the curiosities coming, please rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show.